0: My brother, there will certainly be a lot of swinging in our bachelor pad tonight. Hold it. Let's catch some rays. You and what
1: army? Forget about it.
0: Ah, that fox bar was really something tonight. It was no difficulty to see many swinging Americans enjoying each other a
1: great deal. And here is a thing I will tell you. The two most swinging foxes had the huts on for us and are coming here tonight to let us hold on to their big American breasts.
0: Why not? There's nothing preventing them. After all, huh, there's no other pair of Czech brothers who cruise and swing so successfully in tight slacks. <laughs> we are two Wild and Crazy Guys!
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I am your host, Scott White. And what am I looking at this time? I am looking at a book... Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever by Nick D. Semlin, S-E-M-L-Y-E-N. And this book features Bill Murray, Steve Martin, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Eddie Murphy, John Candy, and Rick Moranis. So the book jumps around from those eight characters. And I'm going to try to break it down chapter by chapter. I've done books on this podcast before, but it's usually been under one subject. So I don't know how this is going to work. If you're listening to this right now, it did work. If you're not listening to this, I, that, well, I, it didn't work. So anyway, so we're going to start with the uh, prologue. And the prologue is the Bill Murray and Chevy Chase fight on Saturday Night Live. Chevy Chase came back to host Saturday Night Live. Bill Murray was in the cast then. They butted heads before the before the show started. At that point Chevy had left. He'd become a star. We all know about Chevy Chase now that he's a bit of an asshole, hard to work with. I guess this might have been at his peak of his assholeism. And Bill Murray is uh, difficult to get along with too. So when those two come together, The biggest thing that I took away from this is Dave Thomas was there from SCTV and he watched the fight and he said like the most brutal thing that was said during the fight is Chevy Chase made fun of Bill Murray's face because he has acne scars. Anybody can do that. But Bill Murray just screamed at Chase, you're medium talent, medium talent. And Dave Thomas said that just stuck with me for the longest time. And to me, that would be... It's like you are just mediocre. And to me, that's like the like the, the sharpest insult you could give to somebody. Just this, this to be mediocre. That's just... Ugh. But that was the prologue. That just set up the scene. And now we're going to go to chapter one called Mr. Careful and Mr. Fuck It. And that is Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. So this first chapter is about those two. They talk about Animal House and how, when it was written, everybody wanted John Belushi to play Bluto. They had some other people in mind, but they just, especially John Landis, the director, like, he wanted John Belushi. And then the producers of the film wanted it to be, they wanted Chevy Chase to play Otter, and they wanted Bill Murray to play Boone, and they wanted Dan Aykroyd to play D-Day. So they wanted, like, They originally wanted an ensemble Saturday Night Live cast and nobody involved with the film. Harold Ramis who wrote it, John Landis who directed it, Ivan Reitman who produced it. They didn't want that to happen. And so they tell a story how at this point, Chase had left, was making it on his own, and John Landis had a meeting with Chevy Chase and basically convinced him not to take the part because he was like, this is an ensemble cast, Chevy. And you're a big star. And playing to his ego worked. And we got the movie that we got where it was just Belushi and then all the other actors surrounding it. And we got Animal House. Classic comedy movie. And Dan Dan wanted to do... I think Dan wanted to do the part of D-Day, but he decided to stay on Saturday Night Live while John was like... from According to... Everything I've heard, Belushi just had a break next schedule. He would film, it was in Oregon, uh, That's what they, they got to the college in Oregon, and he would film there Monday through Thursday, and then he would fly back to New York and do Friday and Saturday in New York, and then Sunday he'd fly back to Oregon, and he did that for a month or two months, however it took, however long it took to film. So Belushi was just on a breakneck schedule during that time because he was doing Saturday Night Live and Animal House at the same time. And then 1941 came along. Well, you know, Animal House came out as a big hit. Spielberg saw the movie and he wanted Belushi to do 1941. And Belushi got $350,000 to do 1941. And to me, this is like the one of the crucial points in Belushi's life because they say that once Belushi found out he got the movie and he got that paycheck, he just realized he made it. And at that point, Belushi had more money than he needed and that just, and I'm sure that led to his, you know, his drug and alcohol dependency and eventual overdose. He just had more money than he knew what to do with, so he had all this extra money that he could use to spend on drugs. So he was Mr. Fucket, and then we had, and then the, the chapter also talks about Dan Aykroyd, who was also in 1941, who is was just as off kilter as Belushi, but in other ways, it's like at, you know, at one point he wanted to be a cop, at one point he wanted to be a funeral director, which a role that he played in My Girl and My Girl Too. And it just talks about, and of course we know Ackroyd believes in UFOs, he believes in ghosts. He was on the same level of out there as Belushi, but as Belushi was just like this party animal that did drugs, Dan was just, it was all cerebral with Dan. And not that Dan didn't do drugs, he, he, he did his fair share, nothing compared to Belushi, but he did his fair share of drugs. But with Dan, everything was calculated. Where Blue Sheet was just, everything was just off the handle. And that's, and I think that's how opposites attract, and that's how they became the best of friends while on Saturday Night Live. Now we go to chapter two, which is called The Jerks. And this one is about Steve Martin and Bill Murray. And we talk about Steve Martin. He first started off, he worked in a magic shop, and he taught himself magic tricks, and he Taught him like a few, like a, a lasso. He taught himself these carnival performer tricks along with magic. And that's what he did for the longest time. And he was performing on the street. They tell one story of how he just basically was just tired of being alone. So he went into one of these shops to pay for sex and he paid her and he didn't get sex. So he thought that might have been the lowest point in my life where you pay to have sex and you can't even have sex. But. His stand-up caught on. He started doing more and more. Lauren Michaels saw him, got him on Saturday Night Live, and then once Steve Martin hit Saturday Night Live, that's when the boost came. His Saturday Night Live performances. So Steve was a writer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and another writer was Rob Reiner, the son of Carl Reiner. Now, Steve and Rob didn't really have a working relationship. However... This did get him in touch with Carl Reiner, and Carl and Steve had a long working relationship together. And after his success on Saturday Night Live, he got together with Carl Reiner, and they came up with The Jerk. And Steve said, even to this day, that was the most fun he ever had working on a movie. Carl and Steve would drive to the movie set from the hotel, and they would just come up with bits on the way to the set. Uh, the movie came out, and it was sort of lambasted by critics, but the audiences loved it. A story in there is Steve was, there was a premiere in London, and Peter Sellers was there, and Peter Sellers came up to him and told him how much he loved the jerk. And that just put in Steve's mind, it's like, he can't really go with what the critics say all the time. If the audience loves it, that's a great, a great, great thing. And there was also, so in the jerk, which we don't see, Bill Murray shot a scene for the jerk, It was cut and it was cut because Bill Murray said he went to Steve and he looked at it and he goes, this scene doesn't make the movie any better. And so I think it would be better for you if we just cut the whole scene. And to me, that awareness, that early in his career where he could have been in a major motion picture, even though it was a small part, he could have been in a major motion picture. And he knew it was better for the film and it was better for his friend for him to be cut from the film to me that is just i don't know if i could have done that i don't know if i could do that now and just to do that when you have this big break and you're so young and now we start now the book uh, the chapter starts to talk about bill murray and how bill was just a firecracker at second city Like, Bill Murray is a big guy. He's, like, 6'2". People don't really recognize how big Bill Murray is. And he would always be getting in fights. Like, people would heckle him, and he'd go into the audience and and try to fight him. And they talk about how uh, Martin Mull, the comedian, was in the audience one time, heckling. And, he like, after the show, he went in the alley and beat up Martin Mull. (laughs) And then we talk about... And Ivan Reitman talks about meatballs. So, Ivan Reitman, he wanted to direct... Animal House, but he couldn't. That went to John Landis. So he wanted a project to direct, and meatballs fell into his lap, and he wanted Bill Murray to play the lead character, the lead counselor on that. And he said, it came down to the wire. Bill Murray famously doesn't have a manager. If you want to talk a movie deal, you talk right to Dan. You have to call him directly. And then that summer, he was going from ballpark to ballpark watching baseball games. That's how he spent his summer. And from all accounts, Bill Murray didn't want to be a movie star. He just wanted to be on Saturday Night Live and just do his thing there and play, you know, and go to baseball games in the summertime. Ivan Reitman was just constantly trying to get in touch with Bill. And Bill was him and hawing. it's like, I don't know if I want to do this movie. And principal photography started. And it's like, we actually, and Ivan says, they actually started shooting. And they didn't know if Bill Murray was going to be there. And Ivan Reitman said, if Bill didn't show up, I don't know what we, what we would have done. We probably would have shut it down. Bill Murray comes in at the last minute. He says the script sucks. <laughs> and a majority of Bill Murray's lines are improvised in that movie. And Ivan Reitman just let him go. The famous, it just doesn't matter scene, totally improvised by Bill Murray. Cut the crap, Morty. I mean, the Mohawks have beaten us the last 12 years. They're going to beat us again.
0: That's just the attitude we don't need, Phil. Sure, Mohawk has beaten us 12 years in a row. Sure, they're terrific athletes. They've got the best equipment that money can buy. Hell, every team they're sending over here has their own personal masseuse. Not masseur, masseuse. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Do you know that every Mohawk competitor has an electrocardiogram blood and urine tests every 48 hours to see if there's any change in his physical condition? <laughs> Do you know that they use the most sophisticated training methods from the Soviet Union, East and West Germany, and the newest Olympic power, Trinidad-Tobago? But it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It does It does It not even, even if we win! If we win! Ha! Even if we win! Even if we play so far over our heads that our noses bleed for a week to ten days! Even if God in heaven above comes down and points His hand at our side of the field! Even if every man, woman, and child has and prayed for us to win It just wouldn't matter Because all the really good looking girls Would still go out with the guys from Mohawk Because they got all the money It just doesn't matter if we win Or we lose It just doesn't matter It just doesn't matter It just doesn't matter it
2: just And that movie went on to be, not as big as Animal House, but that movie went on to be a big hit as well. Now we're going to chapter three called Hit It. And this chapter is all about the Blues Brothers. And I don't know how much more I can talk about this. I mean, I've talked about, uh, I've done uh, the Blues Brothers and the Blues Brothers 2000. I've done a documentary on the Blues Brothers. It talks about how Dan and John opened up a blues bar, which was like the shithole in New York. There was rats and cockroaches, and people were afraid to leave the bathroom. But everybody, it was like an after-hours club. You didn't have to, drinks were for free, totally stocked bar, most disgusting toilets in New York. They compared them to the toilets and train spotting. And then they talked about the evolution of the Blues Brothers. It's like they wanted to do the Blues Brothers. But first, if you notice, the first Blues Brothers sketch on Saturday Night Live, they were playing them as bees. Those goddamn bees, as Belushi put it. He hate being a fucking bee. But they did it as a bee, and it caught on. So they, then they started opening the shows. You know, they, they would warm up the audience as the Blues Brothers, and then they eventually became the musical guest as the Blues Brothers. And then Steve Martin actually had him have them open for him, during a stand-up tour. And what was happening was. People were watching the Blues Brothers. And then when Steve came on. A lot of people would get up and leave. Because they were just there to see the Blues Brothers. And then the rest of the chapter is about. You know. Just the Belushi and John Landis. And drugs and all that. That's been rehashed thousands and thousands of times. No need to go over it here. Um, and just how the the, the budget just ballooned. Out of control, but it eventually became a hit. And we still talk about the Blues Brothers today. And Now we go to Chapter 4, which is The Gonzo and The Gopher. Um, it starts off with Chevy Chase. And something I didn't know about Chevy Chase is Chevy Chase had an abusive stepdad. Now, I don't think this excuses all of his behavior throughout the years, but I think it gives us a handle on where it started. And cuz that was one thing I had no idea no idea about about that. And then he was, ta- you know, so he was the first SNL star and he had the breakout and then he did the the movie Foul Play with Goldie Hawn. He was very very serious in that movie. He 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 took the role seriously and when he would watch dailies, he hated the fact that he was not acting well. He didn't think he was acting well enough amongst all the other Actors, Goldie Hawn, Burgess Meredith, all those people in the movie. And then he talked about... Then they, Then he did Oh, Heavenly Dog, where he becomes Benji. He, he goes, that is the worst movie that I've ever made in my life. And that says a lot because he's done a lot of good work. However, he's done a lot of shitty work as well. So to, to say that Oh, Heavenly Dog is the worst movie that he's ever made, that holds a lot of weight. And then we talk about Bill Murray in the movie Where the Buffalo Roam, a movie based on the life of Hunter S. Thompson. Belushi was supposed to play it, and then Dan Aykroyd was supposed to play it, but it eventually went to Murray. And then there's this famous stories of how Bill Murray hung around Hunter S. Thompson to get the essence of him and the essence of his character. And there's that famous scene where Hunter S. Thompson duct taped him to a lawn chair and threw him into the pool where he almost drowned. And, and even though he went through all that, the movie was a flop. And I enjoy Where the Buffalo Roam. I think it's a great movie. I enjoy Bill Murray's performance. And then years later, Johnny Depp played Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And he actually went to Bill Murray. And he asked him, he goes, how long did it take you to shake Hunter S. Thompson's persona? He goes, five Five years. It took him five years. Because when Bill Murray came back to Saturday Night Live after filming that, he was full Hunter S. Thompson. He was smoking cigarettes in a holder. He was wearing sunglasses. It, like, he, it, like The persona... What they said, like what happened with Heath Ledger with the Joker, where he just became the Joker, apparently Bill Murray just became Hunter S. Thompson. And it just took him a while for him to get out of that. Then they talk about Caddyshack. where where Caddyshack came along and it was just a bunch of of youngsters and except for Ted Knight who was the adult on the set, it was just all drugs and fooling around. They were amazed they were able to get this movie together and get this movie going. And the main part of this chapter about Caddyshack is they talk about Chevy Chase and Bill Murray because this is the first time they have worked together since they had the blow-up on Saturday Night Live. They were in the movie together and then there is a famous cut scene where Bill Murray is on this giant lawnmower and Chevy Chase is wearing golf shoes and Chevy Chase is supposed to hop up on the lawnmower and Bill Murray is supposed to pull away but Chase says don't pull away too quickly because I'm wearing spikes and I'm going to slip off and the first thing Bill Murray does is pull away quickly and he almost Chase almost slips off and gets you know under the lawnmower but they realized they needed a scene between those two and they just put them in the scene in Carl's shack and they just let Bill Murray and Chevy Chase ad lib and they both came up with some great lines and it's a high it's a high point scene of the movie Oh, hi Carl. How
3: do? Oh, cool. well, uh, hi. Hi. Mind if I play through? Uh, sure, go right ahead. What are you, getting in the late night or something? Yeah, I was just listening up a bit. Was that, uh, your ball I heard rambling through? Yeah, did you uh, see my ball? Hello? Title That's it. Yeah, it's right here.
1: Is this your place, Carl?
3: Yeah, what do you think? It's really, uh, it's really awful. Well, I have a lot of things that are on order. You know, credit trouble. Uh, I'm an assistant greenskeeper. They say that doesn't mean anything, you know, until I'm the head greenskeeper. Uh, can you give me a ruling on this? I well, can... sit down. Come on. No, sure I don't I don't home. want to stick to anything in here. Uh... Well, here, take this if... thing off. This is very... Not, don't go to too much trouble, please. Here. Fire up. Uh, with my lips? Yeah. I don't think so, right on, Carl. Just right back. If I could just borrow a wedge or something and get right... If you can open a curtain up out there somewhere, I can get right through that window. People say, you know, I'm an idiot or something because all I do is cut lines for a living, you know? Uh, people don't say that about
2: you as far as you know.
3: Well, I'm working on it, you know, so I don't ever have to, you know, I'm going to be the head greenskeeper. Hopefully within six years, that's my, my schedule. But I, I'm studying a lot of this stuff so I know it, you know, like, uh, you know, chinch bugs, you know, manganese. A lot of people don't even know what that is. You know. Great, Carl. Can I get a... Nitrogen, you know. Just open a curtain or something over there and I can just get right I invented there. my own kind of grass, too. Did you know that? Look at this. This is registered. Carl Spackler Bent. Oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've felt grass like this before, I've played on this. Stuff. This is a hybrid, this is across a uh, uh, bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass uh, featherbed bench and uh, Northern California Sensimia. The amazing stuff about this is that you can play 36 holes on it in the afternoon, take it home and just get stoned in a bejesus belt that night on this stuff. I got pounds of this stuff. Here. No, thank you. I don't, I don't... Uh... So, let's have a little bit of this. I get the big Bob Marley joint, look at this. Here, try this. Carl, I uh, I really don't do this very often. You're gonna love this. is dynamite. Hack, watch out for this. Well, maybe one dragon I, I got gold. <coughs> 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 it's a little harsh, <coughs> but here,
1: cannonball it. <coughs> <coughs> it <goes> right back, <coughs> <coughs> and then one more. He's right
3: on top of cannonball. <coughs> cannonball coming. Anymore
2: no. Then we move to Chapter Five: The Rise and Fall. Uh, this one was about John Candy. They talk about his success on SCTV. They also talk about this way. This uh, chapter really concentrate on his weight. And how he never took care of himself. But he was also known throughout the business as one of the nicest guys in show business. He was the exact opposite of Chevy Chase. Everybody enjoyed John Candy and John Candy's presence. And we talk about Stripes in this chapter. More from John Candy's point of view. I know Stripes is a Bill Murray movie. But in this chapter it's talked about mainly for uh, John Candy's role. And Stripes was supposed to be a Cheech and Chong movie. Cheech and Chong go to the go to the army, and that didn't happen. So what they did was they gave all of Cheech and Chong's lines to Judge Reinhold, who plays a stoner in this movie. And they wanted John Belushi to play the part of Ox that went to John Candy eventually, but it went to you know it went to John Candy and. That was his foray into the movies and that was his stepping stone into the movies. And there is the famous mud wrestling scene where where Candy has to get into the mud wrestling ring with these bikini-clad women and he was just very self-conscious. Cautious? Conscious? Conscious? He was about his weight and he didn't like the fact that he had to take these... Because at the end of the scene, he stands up and he's got these women's bras in his hand so he's in this mud bath with these women breasts out covered in mud he just he just didn't really want the scene they eventually talked him into doing it but he just felt very very uncomfortable doing that scene and now we talk to John Belushi they talk about his death well they talk about so after Blues Brothers he did Continental Divide which was a romantic comedy and that was a flop and then they talk about Neighbors with Dan Aykroyd, and that was a flop. And Neighbors is a very, very interesting behind the scene movie. It's one of those movies where all the stuff that happened behind the scene was more interesting than what happened before the scene. Because in Continental Divide, Belushi cleaned up. He was in the mountains. He was he lost weight. He wasn't doing drugs. He cut down, you know, cut down on his eating. What he was eating right, and all that. then he went to do Neighbors and the majority of Neighbors were night shoots so he went back on cocaine so he could stay up during the night and basically Neighbors was the reason that he went back to drugs and then we go into all of the you know his final hours where he was in the Chateau Marmont Robert De Niro and Robin Williams stopped by and at that point he was writing a script called Noble Rot with Don Novello, Father Guido Sarducci and nobody was around him. His wife and Dan were back in New York, and he was in L.A. You know, the, the, this chapter just ends with them finding Belushi's body, and that's it. And it's sad. You know, they kept calling his room, and uh, nobody answered. And they finally they finally found him that night, which sucks. Uh, then we had um, then we have chapter six, Confidence Man, Confidence Man, chapter six, Confidence Man, and it's about Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy became a star at, he was on Saturday Night Live by 19 or 20. And he was a star by then. He was a standout character. He tells the story how he was at a bar one time and Belushi, John Belushi and Robin Williams came up to him and offered him drugs and he turned him down. And he just wanted to, Murphy's drug was women. Yes, all his time on Saturday Night Live, his drug was women. He loved women. When he found out there was an, they were doing auditions for Saturday Night Live. He just kept calling and calling and calling, and just through sheer will, he made it onto Saturday Night Live. And then, of course, he became the breakout character. He, him and Joe Piscopo were the only ones to survive that year. That the, the one of the worst years in Saturday Night Live history when the when the original crew left and Dick Ebersol took over for Lauren Michaels. Like those two were the only ones to you know to make the purge into the next year, and then that's when Murphy took off, and then he got forty eight hours, and that was a hit. So Mur, uh, Murphy, Murray, Eddie Murphy was on his way to be a superstar. And and I was what I'm out right now, it, most of the Saturday Night Live people, their first movies were a hit. Belushi at Animal House, that was a hit. Chevy Chase had Foul Play, that was a hit. Bill Murray had Meatballs, that was a hit. Technically, Dan's first movie was 1941, but I count his first real movie as Blues Brothers, that was a hit. 48 Hours was a hit. So, all of these Saturday Night Live alum were just making movies right now and just getting inundated, you
1: know, these...
2: And critics just didn't know what to do with them. They didn't want to like them because they came from television. And they didn't think they had earned their their place in movies. But they were all cranking out hits at this time. And now we're going to chapter 7. New model Chevy. 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 New model Chevy. Why would I say Chevy? It's obviously Chevy Chase. And we talk about more of Chevy's bombs under the rainbow. The story about the behind the scenes of Wizard of Oz and Modern Problems where he gets drenched in toxic waste. And the the thing about Modern Problems is not only was the movie was a flop, but he almost died on that movie. There's a scene where he's pretending to be an airplane and they have lights strung up to him. He was electrocuted. He, w- he was just electrocuted and, you know, almost died on, on the set fortunately he didn't and you know we and he went on and then we talk about uh, vacation and this was a turning point in chevy chase's career because he had foul play was a hit and then he had some minor hits like seems like old times but those were ensemble casts he didn't really have a hit where it was just chevy and then vacation came up because it So at this point, Chevy was just playing the cool guy, Uh, you know, cool Chevy Chase. But now he plays Clark Griswold, and he is just the bumbling, fumbling father, and this is a turning point. So this is the character that Chase has just exploited through his career. He's no longer just constantly cool. He's, you know, he's a bit of a nerd and all that. And more likable in this character. And Vacation was a hit. John Candy comes in for a cameo. They wanted Bill Murray to do this cameo, but he couldn't do it. So they brought John Candy in to do that. Cam- the cameo. The cameo, Jesus Christ, I can't talk. The cameo, you know, park is closed. You know, the, the deer outside should have, moose outside should have told you. And he got $1 million to do that. Some You know, the people from SCTV and all that, they were a bit jealous of John. Where he just came in for a two-day shoot and he got $1 million. So he was on his way. Now we have Chapter 8, Brain Power. And we talk about Steve Martin again. And we talk about Pennies from Heaven, where his first movie, The Jerk, was a hit. Pennies from Heaven was not a hit. It's a very, very good movie, but... All of these characters fell into the same thing. John Belushi was supposed to be Bluto the old time. And Chevy Chase was supposed to be the ultra-cool guy all the time. And Steve Martin was supposed to be the jerk. And whenever they would try something new, they would always get shut down. It's like, this is not what we're expecting from these people. So it's a double-edged sword. They got famous for being one way, but they didn't want to be typecast as that for the rest of their lives. So that's why Steve Martin, he did a musical, Pennies from Heaven dyed his hair black it didn't do anything for him and then he did dead men don't wear plaid and the man with two brains both with carl reiner both very funny movies but both did not elevate him back up to the jerk status we get a point so at this point steve martin is kind of floundering as well all of them started off strong and now they're all not all of them but you know they're they're starting to flounder in their movie careers and now we talk about Rick Moranis for the first time. And Rick Moranis was with SCTV. And we talk about him and the Mackenzie brothers, which was a huge breakout hit for him. And him and Dave Thomas went to do Strange Brew, the movie where they co-wrote and co-directed. And that movie, and once again, Rick Moranis, not wanting to be typecast, he after he did the McKenzie brothers, strange brew he took a movie called streets of fire directed by walter hill who did uh, 48 hours and another 48 hours and he played this asshole businessman so once again he's trying to break from his you know comedic roots and he's trying to do something dramatic and the movie didn't do anything and people didn't like Rick Moranis in that role because everybody liked Rick Rick Moranis and everybody wanted to like Rick Moranis. And now we're going to Chapter 9, Crossing the Streams. And this chapter is, of course, about Blues Brothers 2000. I'm just kidding, joshing. It's, of course, about Ghostbusters. It starts off with Belushi's funeral where all of his friends and family were around and... And everybody sort of had got a handle on their mortality after seeing, you know, after having to go to John Belushi's funeral. And then we talk about Dan, about Dr. Detroit. He did the movie Dr. Detroit, and it was his first movie without John Belushi. And it was a flop, and a lot of people were saying, okay, can Dan Aykroyd, can he be in a movie without John Belushi? Can he be successful without John Belushi? And... You know, that was over his head right there. Now, the good thing about Dr. Detroit is that's where he met Donna Dixon, his wife, for a long, long time. And then, of course, we had the John Landis film, Trading Places, with Dan and Eddie Murphy, and that was a hit. Now, it wasn't a solo Dan. It was Dan and Eddie Murphy, but now Dan had a, a, a bona fide hit under his belt, and that was his bargaining tool to get Ghostbusters made because he'd been writing Ghostbusters for years and it was supposed to be him and Belushi of course Belushi died and he had to get a Bill Murray and it took some finagling Bill Murray had this movie called The Razor's Edge and he wanted to do it and it was a dramatic role once again wanting to get away from what do he, what he's known for and he agreed he goes if the a columbia he said if you let me do razor's edge i will do ghostbusters and they agreed and he did razor's edge and it was a flop and uh but then he agreed to do ghostbusters and rick moranis he is back in ghostbusters he's back being you know a comical character actor which is what we want him to see the part was originally for john candy and But they said John Candy wanted to play the role as in this German accent. And I remember, see, I, I, know, I know what accent they're talking about because I saw an SCTV sketch where he was doing that accent. Good morning, people, and welcome to part six of Building a Better House. I'm your instructor, Carl Bildenhausen.
1: This, of course, is my dog, Prince. Hello, the boy. Hello, the boy. Hello, Prince. <laughs> the good boy. How many times have you purchased something to improve your home, and when you get it home a few days later, you know, you find out what you paid for isn't what you got? Example, you want to build a, a bookshelf to house your books. All right, uh, you go to the lumber salesman. He says to you, uh, here, take this. And what does he give you? He gives you particle board, which is junk. All it is is junk. It's chemicals, sawdust, water. It, it couldn't hold six scratch and snip books. That's how bad it is. But people, people will always be swindled because they will not speak up. They will not speak up. So, to illustrate my point, I go to this hardware store, and and I show you how I do things.
2: So, you watch. But they also say he wanted too much money. So, I've never heard that before. I've always heard that they didn't hire John Belushi because he wanted to do, not John Belushi, John Candy, because he didn't want, he wanted to do it in that German accent, and Ivan Reitman was like, no. They did, however, get uh, John Candy to do the Ghostbusters music video. And, of course, Ghostbusters through the roof hit. Now we go to chapter 10, Murphy's Law. Talking about Eddie Murphy. Chapter starts off how he hated Saturday Night Live. Don't know why you would bash the show that gave you the opportunity to be who you are, but that's what he did. He hated SNL. And then they talk about his delirious. And delirious, I saw, was recently voted like the best stand-up special of all time. And if you're around my age... You saw Delirious and you were quoting Delirious all the time. The thing with Delirious was there's a lot, there was a lot of anti-gay material which did not age well. Did not age well at all. And he was getting protested at the time. But that didn't stop it from being a huge, huge hit. So he had 48 hours under his belt. And then there was this movie called Best Defense starring Dudley Moore and they looked at the dailies and they said it needs some beefing up and so what they did was very unconventional it's like they got Eddie Murphy and they paid him an exorbitant amount of money just to shoot it was about you know the army and army intelligence and and making weapons so they took they flew Eddie Murphy out to like Saudi Arabia or somewhere just to shoot these scenes so he and Dudley Moore never have any screen time together. They just shot some scenes from Eddie Murphy and put it in the movie, hoping it to make it funny, which they didn't. People were angry because Eddie Murphy was prominent on the folder, on the folder, on the poster. And he's only in the movie for like eight minutes. So people felt betrayed that they promoted this as an Eddie Murphy movie. But then, his next movie was Beverly Hills Cop. And up to this point, the biggest grossing Saturday Night Live film was Ghostbusters, but Beverly Hills Cop outdid that. And Beverly Hills Cop was a monster hit. And it put Eddie Murphy in the next Stratosphere. And it just talks about how everybody wanted him to do movies after that. Now we go to Chapter 11. European Vacations. After Bill Murray did Ghostbusters, he basically dropped out. He didn't Murray just did not want to be a movie star. He didn't want to be recognized wherever he went. He hated that. He, he liked his anonymity. He just liked to be able to go wherever he wanted to go and not be recognized. So he dropped out and he just bummed around Europe with his wife for the longest time. He was taking classes. He was studying European history. The whole deal. So Murray was out of the spotlight for like four or five years. And then we have Chase who we talk about... Now, at this point, he was making the movie European Vacation. It was a sequel to Vacation. They were taught... Amy Heckerling, who directed it, said she had nothing but bad things to say about Chase. Said that he was a nightmare on the set, impossible to work with, and she just hated it. And European Vacation, it was a hit, but it was not critically acclaimed, which is can be said about a bunch of these movies but then he went to do Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd which was a modest hit the critics didn't like it but it was a modest hit and then he did Fletch which was a big hit Fletch sort of solidified that Chevy Chase persona and it was just Chase he didn't have a co-star like like Dan and Spies Like Us So, Chase was finally in a movie that made money and was critically acclaimed. So, he was happy about that. And he wasn't really bothered by all the bad press he was getting from other people saying that he was impossible to work with. Now, we're at Chapter 12. Going West. And Martin had five flops in a row. And he was feeling down. And then he did Three Amigos with John Landis, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short. And that was a big pick me up for him, and for Chase. So he followed up. He uh, Chase followed up Fletch with Three Amigos. So he, you know he had these these hits under his belt. He didn't mind working. He liked Steve Martin and Martin Short, so he wasn't a big pain in the ass. He liked John Landis as well. This is actually one of the few movies that Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live he co wrote this with Randy Newman of all people. But during the film. Uh, Chase was on a lot of pain pills and a lot of cocaine. So his drug use was getting out of hand at this time. And now we talk back to, we go back to Rick Moranis, where he was just taking little, little parts in these movies. He was offered the janitor in The Breakfast Club. I didn't know that. He turned it down and it went to another actor. I don't know his name, but I thought, you know, just to see Rick Moranis in The Breakfast Club, that would have been so cool to see. And then he did Little Shop of Horrors which was a critical and financial hit. It was a musical, so it showed off not only his comedic talents, but his singing talents. And this movie marks the comeback of Bill Murray. So up until now, he had, like I said, he had been off in Europe Europe and wasn't full-fledged back, but he does this scene. So Little Shop of Horrors is based on this movie by Roger Corman in the 50s. And Bill Murray plays a sadomasochist and and Steve Martin plays this dentist that just loves hurting people so there's a great scene between Steve Martin and Bill Murray. I went to a terrible dentist on Wednesday who was recommended to me by somebody that
0: I saw on Monday who's the brother of a man that I usually see on Sundays and their mother actually taught them everything that they know she's incredibly gifted and quite elderly and a lot of people think she shouldn't be working but I go to her because I'm just incredibly devoted to her strength She can't really see who you are, but she knows she knows the sound of your voice. And if you tell her where it is, the problem, she eventually works her way back and she finds the trouble and she does it. I wish I had that family, because I can only go so long. That's how I want to be. I don't ever want to have to be just... Comfy? Yes, doctor? I remember the first time I went to the dentist, I thought, gosh, what a neat job, if only I were a dentist. The dentist I went to had the greatest car. He had a Corvette, and I thought... My gosh, everybody calls him doctor, and he's not really a doctor. Oh my god. Only I got out of here okay, and then but then, you know, after it was all finished, they gave me a candy bar, and I thought to myself, this is what I get, a candy bar? This is what you do. You go through a little thing and you get chocolate out of it. We're getting to work with incredible professionals. these incredibly, incredibly wonderful equipment. Well, Let's real. take a look at that mouth.
2: <sighs> Say Ah. Uh...
0: Yeah, great. Oh, you are something special. You are something special. Come on. Come on. Come on. Mm, uh, uh, Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you.
2: Oh, yeah. It's your professionalism that I respect. One of the only few times they are on the screen together because their scene got cut from the jerk. And it's just Little Shop of Horrors is just a wonderful... I'm not into musicals, but I do like this movie. And this scene is just great. Now we go to Chapter 13. Eddie Murphy Raw. So Eddie Murphy took a bit of hiatus too. You know, dealing with his fame. He was talking about... You know, at this point, Eddie was uh, the screw and everything. He did The Golden Child, which was an okay hit. But, you know, the uh, critics were harsh. And then he did. He was invited to be a presenter at the Oscars. And then he did this, you know. And then he did a, a speech about how black people were not being treated fairly in Hollywood, which he didn't run by anybody. That just came out of nowhere, so that was a bit awkward. And then we talk about his other stand up movie, Raw, which just proves that Eddie Murphy just has the stage presence and just can knock it out of the park with his stand ups. And then we talk about Coming to America. And he's back teamed up with John Landis from Trading Places. Coming to America was a giant, giant hit. However, Coming to America broke the relationship between John Landis and Eddie Murphy. Because apparently Eddie Murphy punched John Landis in the stomach while they were on set. They just did not did not get along. Sort of like, not as bad as, and we'll talk about it later, but like Harold Ramis and Bill Murray on Groundhog Day. That fractured their relationship for years. And this fractured Eddie Murphy and John Landis' for, for years as well. Big, big hit. Lost a director. Now we have Chapter 14, Partners in Crime. We talk about John Candy. How he was taking these roles. He was in Brewster's Million with Richard Pryor. How Richard Pryor was sort of jealous of John Candy because John would come in and he'd be very, very friendly to the staff. And Richard would come in and he would just sit in the corner. And not want anybody to bother him. And I don't know how you can be jealous of somebody for just being them when you're just being you. If you're just sitting in the corner, you can't be jealous of somebody if they're just not sitting in the corner with you. And then we had spaceballs, so he got to work with his buddy Rick Moranis again and Mel Brooks. And then we talk about planes, trains, and automobiles. Just the, him and Steve Martin in that great, that great, great Thanksgiving movie. And that just propelled John Candy into superstardom. after that, after that performance. Not only was he funny, it had heart, it had feeling. It just you, you don't get a better John Candy performance than you do in planes, trains, and automobiles. And uh, now we talk to uh, Dan Aykroyd. He, we talk about the movie Dragnet with him and Tom Hanks. Uh, he got back to writing scripts. So he wrote *Dragnet*, and he was able to play, pay homage to uh, Jack Webb and the original series. Tom Hanks came in, and you know they had great chemistry. And then we talk about Steve Martin and Roxanne, how he wrote this movie alone—one of the few movies since, the I think, the only movie that he wrote alone. And it's you know it's the retelling of Sir *Cyrano de Bergerac*. This was just a big hit for, for Steve Martin because not only did he do physical humor, he did he was doing jokes. They talk about that scene where he has to come up with 40 big nose jokes. And apparently that scene weighed heavy on Steve Martin's head. He didn't know if he could do it. And then when the time came, he did it flawlessly. He got all 20. And I think they said he did it all in one take. Steve Martin is a preparer. He prepared and it, and it paid off. We talk about dirty rotten scoundrels. Him and Michael Caine in Roxanne. He was sort of playing it straight. In Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, he goes back to more of being a you know being a comical boob, if you will. Now we go to chapter fifteen. We're back, and we talk about Scrooge. And this was Bill Murray's first full movie since he came back from Ghostbusters. He had that little part, little shop of horrors, but this is his first starring role. Richard Donner was directing it, and they didn't get along. This, this is like a common theme with a lot of these people. They just did not get along on that movie. Uh, apparently, Bill Murray fought him fought him on every step of the way. Donner was not so much into ad-libbing as other directors that Bill Murray worked with. He wanted them to stick more to the script, and Bill Murray did not want to stick to the script. So that was where a lot of butting heads and a lot of friction came. And then they got Ghostbusters 2. They finally got that off the ground. And it was incredibly, incredibly rushed. Nobody was happy with Ghostbusters 2. It made a ton of money. And there was some good stuff in it. But really nobody was happy with the movie. They wanted to do more with it. They just didn't have the time to do with that. Because it basically took Murray so long to sign on that they wanted it for a summer release and whenever you have to rush a movie whenever you rush a movie it's never a good thing and i don't know why they thought it would be I, the name carried it for a lo- for a while and all the you know they got the whole the whole cast back which was good but i mean it falls short of the first one but it did make money now chevy Ch- we talk about chevy chase after the three amigos he went into rehab and now he was out of rehab And he was to prove he was going to prove to everybody that could stay clean. So out of rehab, he hosted the Oscars, he hosted the Tonight Show, and it was just to show that he was out, he was straight, he had his comic chops back, and it worked. People saw people saw the new him, saw that he was straight and still funny. And then he did the movie Funny Farm, which I think is a great movie, but didn't do well because. They were saying that it was not wacky enough, but not all comedies have to be wacky. Check out Funny Farm; it's a, it's a good movie. And then he did he did Fletch Lives, which was an okay sequel to Fletch. And then he did Caddyshack Two, which is an abomination. the The podcast before this one, there's two podcasts before this one. It's Caddyshack Two. Check out what we have to say about that. Even though he had two hits back to back with Fletch and Three Amigos Out of Rehab. He had one minor hit with Fletch Lives, but then he had Funny Farm and Caddyshack 2, which were total flops. So he went back, and he he promised, I'm not going to do Clark Griswold ever again. But he did have to go back to the well, and then he did Christmas Vacation. And Christmas Vacation is now a... uh, It wasn't an instant classic. Now it is a cult classic in a cult Christmas movie. People watch it every year. Chevy Chase goes around every year at Christmas time and... You know, does Q&A at it? Now, the one thing I didn't know, I thought Beverly D'Angelo and Chevy Chase got to, were, you know, worked. I know he didn't click with a lot of people, but I thought those two were together on this film. But apparently they fought like cats and dogs. But they did say they were like a married couple. They would fight like cats and dogs, but whenever they'd yell action, boom. They were right there. They were focused. Crystal Citation took number one at the box office. So it was it was a hit then but now it's just holiday classic. That's to me that's going to be Chevy Chase's legacy. No matter what happens, he will always, every Christmas when you got a Christmas movie like Scrooged and that's becoming almost as big as Christmas vacation. But whenever you have a Christmas movie that's something people watch every year for the rest of their lives and they pass that down from generation to generation. It's
1: beautiful. Good God. Where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no! We're all in this together. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're gonna press on, and we're gonna have the hap-happiest hap, Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny fucking K. And when Santa squeezes his fat white ass down that chimney night, he's gonna find the jolliest bunch of assholes this side of the nuthouse. You're goofy. Don't piss me off, Art. Clark, it's over. Not according to Santa's watch, it isn't. Now, come on, son. Stay out of this, Dad. Clark, I think it's best if everyone just goes home
3: before things get
1: worse. Worse? How could they get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell.
2: (laughs) Now we have chapter 16 called Exit the Nice Guys. And we talk about Rick Moranis. And this is when he entered in the Honey I Shrunk or Honey I Blew Up. It was Disney. So he was the inventor. So he had the the string of honey, Honey movies. And during this time, he worked on Spaceballs, My Blue Heaven, and L.A. Story. Minor roles in that. And he was supposed to be in City Slickers. He was supposed to have the Daniel Stern no, he was supposed to have the Bruno Kirby role in City Slickers, but his wife died right before that. And we all heard now that like Rick Moranis quit show business to take care of his kids when his wife died. And that's what he did. he did. After his wife died, he did one more movie. It was The Flintstones. He played Barney Rubble. But then after that, he just retired and took care of his kids. Now, since then, he's come out of retirement, but at that point, it says that his career lasts 11 years, and that's when he retired. And speaking of the Flintstones, they wanted John Candy to play Fred, but they couldn't get him to do that because he was shooting the great outdoors. Now we go to, and once again, John Candy had a string of flops. Like the great outdoors, it says the great outdoors was a flop, but I don't think it was a flop. I think it did okay But Who's Harry Crumb and Cannonball Fever, which was a sequel to Cannonball Run, an unofficial sequel to Cannonball Run, those did horrible. But then he got Uncle Buck, besides uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, the role he's most known for, is Uncle Buck. And that was a massive hit. And then he got to do a dramatic role in JFK, and I think he did it right. A lot of these actors wanted to do a dramatic role where they carried the film. He did a dramatic role. He did a short dramatic role in a giant movie. And I think that worked out to his advantage. And everybody loved that role. But then people started to question John Candy's health. Because he was a big drinker, he was a big eater, and he was a big smoker. And of course, you know, while he was on set filming Wagons East... He died in his sleep of a heart attack at 42, 42 or 44. And when he died, he weighed 330 pounds. And now we go to chapter 17, Getting Serious. Uh, Steve Martin, it starts off with Steve Martin. They talk about he was watching television and this was during the Iraqi war. And he wanted to do a USO tour for the troops because he, all those people were out there risking their lives. He wanted to give something back and then they say he watched the movie the last boy scout with bruce willis and he said he was disgusted by it. he was disgusted by the violence and he was disgusted by the foul language and he wanted he goes and he made a decision in his you know he he never wanted to go in that direction he wanted to do something the exact opposite and that's what he did he did parenthood where he played a dad and it was an ensemble cast and it was a great big hit and Steve Martin says like, like this character is the most is the character closest to him and his personality, and then he wrote L.A. Story, and this is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen L.A. Story, it, it just encaptures the whole ridiculous ridiculous, the whole ridiculousness of L.A. And he invited all his friends to see it, and Carl Reiner is like, "This is art, this is art." But then, after L.A. story, he got divorced and he became he started writing plays and he contemplated just giving up movies altogether and just being a playwright for the rest of his life. And now we and then we talk about Eddie Murphy. Uh, he went to Cannes to support. There was a lot of black filmmakers at Cannes, and their films were there. So he went there to support uh, black filmmakers, and he saw all these films made by black filmmakers, and you know he was inspired, and that inspired him to make ha- Harlem Nights where he wrote and directed it, and he brought in Richard Pryor and Red Fox, his idols. Out of all the SNL people, Eddie Murphy had the longest run of hit movies. Maybe not critically acclaimed, but they were hit movies. He had, he had the run of that the best. And then Harlem Nights was the first misstep with him directing. They felt maybe it could have been a better movie if he was a director. It was his first time directing. I don't think he has directed since. Uh, then he did a bunch of mediocre movies, Boomerang and The Distinguished Gentleman, and they weren't hitting it. And then how like Chevy Chase went back to Clark Griswold with The Vacation. It was like He went back to Axel Foley to do Beverly Hills Cop 3, and he knew he was hurting so bad, he actually went and contacted John Landis, a guy that he just you know, hated for all these years to direct this movie. And John Landis said, sure, why not? And then they got on set and it turned out that Eddie Murphy did not want to be funny. He did not want to be wisecracking Axel Foley. He wanted to be a serious. And everybody knew this was a bad idea and nobody could talk Eddie Murphy out of it. And Beverly Hills Cop 3 was not a success. And that was followed up with a Vampire in Brooklyn. And the chapter ends with Vampire in Brooklyn is a comedy but Eddie Murphy doesn't want it to be a comedy, so we need to hire people to to let him think that it's not a comedy, even though it is a comedy. So they basically had to trick Eddie Murphy into making this movie and hope that he would be funny, and that wasn't a hit as well. Now we're at Chapter 18, Time Out. We talk about Dan Aykroyd and Nothing But Trouble. And I have done a podcast. I really like the movie Nothing But Trouble, and I think it's gained a cult following now, but... At the time, there was nobody, like in Blues Brothers, he had John Landis. And in Ghostbusters, he had Harold Ramis to help rein him in. This was just Dan, just Dan's imagination, just run wild. Nobody was checking him. And the budget went over, and Chevy Chase agreed to do it because he was friends with Dan, and so did Chevy Chase. They basically agreed to do it without reading the script. And once they got the script, they're like, ooh, we're going to be in trouble And nobody liked this movie. Critics hated it. And it was a big, big flop. I like this movie. It has since gained a cult following. It's not all good, but it's not all bad either. And then Chevy Chase, after this, did the Chevy Chase show. He was tired of doing movies, and so they agreed to give him a show. And it was just not in his wheelhouse. He was just totally, totally uncomfortable doing the Chevy Chase show. It showed... He, he was uncomfortable doing the monologue. He was uncomfortable interviewing guests. You know, Chevy Chase does a lot of things good, but being a talk show host, that wasn't one of them. And I think it only lasted like 11 weeks and it was canceled. Well, now we talk to Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Now, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Fantastic movie. As I mentioned before, it fractured because Bill Murray was getting a divorce at this time. He was not in the best of mind and best of spirits while he was shooting this movie and harold Ramis called him out on that and it fractured their relationship right before until right before harold Ramis died he was still able to get a great performance out of bill murray and groundhog day has become one of the you know the greatest movies of all time and if you watch it you know why it's a great premise it's a great cast it's a great performances especially by bill murray and then we get the epilogue about telling us about all the stuff that they've done and where they're at today. All of them seem to be doing fine today. Through the ups and downs, all except John Belushi and John Candy, they're all out there, they're all kicking, they're all still doing stuff. And then that's where the book ends. And that's Wild and Crazy Guys. And I must say, it's a very, very in-depth book about the 80s, and the movies and the men behind the movies it's a very very quick read it's a very very fun read Uh, some of the stuff in there of course everybody knows but some of the stuff in there you know nobody knows it's a nice book where where everything is in one spot if you want to know everything about the 80s and saturday night live and sctv actors this is the book to get all right that's it oh hey i was able to talk about an hour on a book If I could only read a book in an hour, that would be great. All right. I want to thank everybody listening, and we'll see everybody here next time on the Dan Aykroyd Podcast.
0: To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash Scott White and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. That should help people find this podcast. And no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast.
1: It's like, okay, the critics always really preferred Bill Murray movies to Chevy Chase movies. However, it does seem as if the point of all the Bill Murray movies is that he's this kind of hip, cool, curmudgeon, smartass guy who in the last 20 minutes gets a transformation and becomes this nice guy. Yeah, yeah. And we're and and almost apologizes for who he was the entire movie before you know, the whole rest of the movie before uh, before that happened Groundhog Day, Stri- Stripes Stripes Groundhog Day Scrooge mm-hmm. you know the whole thing I mean when like like for instance Stripes how does he go from where Warren Oates kick his kicks his ass deservedly kicks his ass he deserves to get belly punched by Warren Oates in that movie. How does he go from being this iconoclastic, I don't give a fuck about anything, I get beat up by Warren Oates to now he's rallying the troops. Yeah. And now he's getting their he's you know he's getting their army on during the the parade. And now he's like leading a secret mission. The same thing with like with with like with Groundhog Day. I mean, does anybody really think a less sarcastic Bill Bill Murray is a better Bill Murray? I mean, maybe it's better for Andy McDowell, but not for us as the as the viewer. Yet, yet Chevy Chase movies don't play that shit. Chevy Chase is the same supercilious asshole at the end of the movie that he is at the beginning. He never changes in his stuff. He's always like a bit of a dick. And is always completely sarcastic. I mean, unless they cast him playing a dope, like he is in the the, uh, the vacation movies. But when he's playing like a Chevy character, he's uh, you know he never apologizes for who he is. Stays that way throughout the whole film. And even if there is a a slight change, that's not the whole point of the movie. Yeah, is like turning him into a nice cuddly guy.
2: Have you ever worked with
1: him? No, I've, I would, I'd love to.
2: I'm a gigantic fan of his early work, like the Fletch stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, yeah. just think in Saturday Night Live and so, no, so yeah. many of his,
1: Oh, the whole first season of Saturday Night, like pretty much all those early movies, except for Oh Heavenly Dog. All those early
2: movies. He seems today to be this like really uncomfortable person. Mm-hmm. He seems it's almost like I it, like too many people paid attention to him for too long mm-hmm. and it freaked him out. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know him, yeah, yeah. but when I see, you know, stories about him or interviews with him or, you know, any any weird controversy that happens with him, mm-hmm. I'm almost like I think the guy just got overwhelmed.
0: Cross. Cross.
1: This has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast. Yeah, Cleveland, this is Quagmire. Uh, listen, I feel awful. Why don't you come on over and we can try to get things back to the way they used to be. Remember how it was? Perhaps here there are many unsuspecting foxes to have sex with us. That is why we wear a tight pants to show our bulges. Well, two wild and crazy guys. You guys look
3: stupid.